It was a controversial message with controversial messengers. No sex, please. We're teenagers. It's a running title of a recently concluded documentary on BBC Two. Perhaps some of you saw it. And many who saw it thought it was quite bizarre. Even the premise of the show, that 12 teenagers would forgo sexual relations for five calendar months, seemed extraordinary. Though apparently this hard-fought achievement would reap some benefits. But even more radical and more strange in some people's eyes were the messengers who conveyed the message. For this gospel of sexual purity came from the lips of two Bible-believing Christians. And while they hardly pushed their beliefs, it was to the chagrin of some critics that they approached the whole area of sexuality from a Christian perspective. Andrew Billen, who's a writer for the Times newspaper, complained about this. My suspicion is that this grim program has been sneaked into prime time to fill a religious quota. Experts agreed, we were told, that saying no to sex gives teenagers control over their lives and builds confidence and self-esteem. So why, I wondered, had the program entrusted the delivery of this good advice to two Christians, whose advocacy was based not on common sense, but biblical assertion? Well, why indeed? Why not just common sense? When it comes to sexual ethics... Does a Bible-believing Christian have anything pertinent to say? Or is Andrew Billen correct in what he implies? That God, in fact, has nothing relevant to say on matters of sexuality. Well, tonight, as we continue our series, The Conspicuous Christian, we discover that the only way to maintain purity... Purity in a world obsessed by sex is precisely by bringing God into the equation. You see, sexual purity can't be thought of as a mere private, personal issue. It is a God issue. And therefore we open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4 again to hear what God would say. Thank you to our readers We'll be focusing especially on the second reading, and it would help to have a Bible open in front of you to follow the text as we go. But we really need to pray for God's help uh, so that I'm sensitive as I preach on this uh, subject. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is relevant to contemporary life. In fact, for some of us, you have some painfully relevant matters to draw to our attention. Therefore, we pray that we might hear you speak clearly to us through the Bible, by your Spirit, 
about the imperative to sexual purity and may respond in a matter you desire, in a way you desire. Lord, whatever you wish to do among us, please do. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of days after Peter, Richard and I had planned this uh, sermon series, I opened my diary to log in my preaching dates. Couldn't quite remember who'd got what, and uh, so I scoured the list to find out which poor fellow had got the sermon on sex. Well, lo and behold, in fact, the senior pastor's in a car at the moment heading down south as far away as possible. (laughs) But after I discovered this, I wondered to myself, why the trepidation? And I realized for one thing that even in our hedonistic culture, where sex seems to be everywhere and everything, nevertheless, sex remains for many of us a rather embarrassing subject to talk about or to hear a talk about. And moreover, we also know, you as well as I, that this is a highly sensitive issue for many people. Indeed, I dare say sexual purity is a crucial issue for all of us. And therefore, as we come to the Bible, I'm assured by the fact that God has some very clear, very straightforward instructions about sexual behavior. And perhaps none clearer than what we find in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 10. Now, I'd like to suggest four things which God would say to us through this particular text regarding sexual purity. And the first point can be summed up by the word pleasure. Pleasure. If we are going to be sexually pure people, a distinctive community in terms of our sexual conduct, we must be a people devoted to pleasure. But the pleasure I'm thinking of is not, as you might suspect, our own personal pleasure or in this case, our sexual gratification. No, I'm thinking about the pleasure that Paul's thinking of in verse 1 when he says, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now Paul had founded this church, to whom he's writing, in the Greek town of Thessalonica. And Paul had been forced to leave it pretty Uh, shortly after its inception. You can just imagine how eager Paul was to find out, now he's in Corinth, how these new converts are getting on. So he sends his young assistant Timothy, and Timothy checks out how things are going, and he's just arrived back with a very encouraging report. The Thessalonians are standing firm in their faith, and in many ways they are a model church for other churches to follow. Nevertheless, though you and I might have been satisfied with that, Paul was not. See, the apostle was aware that like a group of marathon runners, they had only reached the first or second mile marker. However, the ultimate goal is that they make it to the finishing tape, to completion. Therefore, Paul encourages them, keep going. Yes, I've already told you how to live to please God. Yes, you're already living that way. 
But now I urge you, we ask you, we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Please God more. Please. And the way you please God, says Paul, is by doing his will. Verse 3, it is God's will, or you could translate that, it is God's pleasure, his will, that you should be sanctified. God is satisfied when believers are sanctified. Now, sanctification, it's one of these biblical words, and uh, we don't always uh, know what it means if we don't come from a church background. It simply describes the process whereby God makes his children more pure, more perfect, more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that holiness, being holy, is the end product of which sanctification is a process. And Paul says, when we are sanctified, when we become more like Jesus in the way that we live, this pleases God. It is his will for your life. So often eager Christians ask that question, don't they? What is the will of God for my life? What's God's will for me? And usually when people ask that, they're thinking about questions like, which job should I do? Uh, Who should I marry? Sally or Stacy? Where should I live? But the will of God is really, if ever, understood that way in Scripture. Biblically, God's will is not primarily about where you live, who you marry, or what job you do. Though there are some parameters for these things. No, the will of God is mainly about who you are and who you become. And whether you're 5, 25, or 75, it's not ambiguous. The will of God is your holiness. It is my holiness if you are a child of God saved by grace. So, if that is God's goal, is that my goal? If God is committed to my holiness, am I? Because if not, we won't have the bigger picture, the larger context for battling against sexual sin. Only with the larger objective in view, our sanctification, can we have the perspective for our daily struggles. And sadly, there are some Christians who are failing in the sexual arena precisely because they don't have a context. They don't know the higher reasons why they should pursue sexual purity. But if you are committed to God's goal, holiness, then you are ready as Paul is now, to move on from considering pleasure to, secondly, purity. Now, as such, we move from a generality, the big picture of sanctification, to the specifics, and a particular area wherein we can be holy and increase in godliness. And Paul has some very practical advice to say about maintaining sexual purity. Uh, Four things at least. So first of all, he says, avoid. Avoid. Verse 3b, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now we need to be clear what Paul is speaking about and what he's calling us to avoid here. 
What the NIV translates as sexual immorality actually comes from one Greek word, and the Greek word is pornea, from which we get the word pornography. So yes, this text applies to what you view on the internet. This is about what you watch on late night television. It's about what magazines you read or shouldn't read. It's about what you do with your body and what you think in your head. In Paul's day, pornea was used to describe a whole range, in fact, of sexual misconduct. On the one hand, it often described fornication, that is, all sorts of sexual relationships out with a marriage context. And on the other hand, it sometimes described adultery. That is, sexual relations between a married person and someone who is not their spouse. So sexual immorality is probably a good translation for this category. And we should notice in passing what this implies. That if there is such a thing as sexual immorality, there is also such a thing as sexual morality. See, Paul in the Bible and God are not negative about sex. In fact, God has such a high view of sex that in its proper context of marriage, it is vigilantly protected and guarded. As here, where Paul reminds the Thessalonians to avoid sexual sin in their own particular situation and context. Now, often I think we imagine that maintaining sexual purity must be much more difficult today than it ever has been in the rest of history. But in actual fact, in the first century, temptation was equally strong. In Corinth, where Paul was writing this from, Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of beauty and sex, was worshipped by the masses, so that the night streets would be filled with servants of the deity who would indulge in cult prostitution. Thessalonica was little better most religious people there followed a group of deities called the Cabaret, whose rites involved gross sexual behaviour. New Testament professor F.F. Bruce helpfully sums up the sexual norms of the time. That a man might have a mistress who could provide him with intellectual companionship also. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine. Well, casual gratification was readily available from the harlot. And the function of his wife was to manage his household and to be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. And therefore, Paul could hardly assume, could he, that in such a culture, new Christians would automatically possess a biblical outlook on sex. And therefore, Paul says to them, he reminds them, avoid sexual immorality. Abstain from it completely. I uh, have a family member, a member of my wider family, who was previously uh, an alcoholic. In fact, if you asked him today, he would tell you that he's still an alcoholic, though he's never touched a drop of alcohol for over 20 years. And he knows that even to touch alcohol for him would be disastrous. He refuses even to let other people drink alcohol in his house because the temptation for him would be so strong. And similarly, Paul says, the response of Christians to sexual immorality must be the same. 
Not moderation. Well, just a little bit might not matter. But abstention. He says, remove yourself from the situations and the circumstances where you easily fall prey to temptation. Now that's pretty good practical advice for all of us. Firstly, avoid. Secondly, control. Each of you should learn, verse 4, to control his own body in a way that is holy and honourable. You see from the NIV footnote, the little uh, letter next to it there, and at the bottom that some people translate this verse, that each one should acquire for himself a wife. In fact, no one knows with mathematical certainty what Paul was talking about here when he said literally, each one should acquire his own vessel. But in any case, whether speaking of marital faithfulness or simple bodily control, the application is clear. Whether we are single or married or in our culture dating, we must learn to control our bodies in ways which are noble. Paul says, in holiness, in a way that recognizes God, that he sees all that we do. And honourable, that is, in relation to others, respecting our sexuality and theirs, having modesty. Personally, I therefore think Paul is speaking about marriage here, in which case he's saying to husbands, listen, don't think that marriage is just a legal license for lust. Don't think you can just do any ignoble thing because you're married. Sex should be honoured. Your spouse should be honoured. And whatever your marital uh, situation and status, you should control your body in a holy and honourable way. Most mornings uh, for two years now and a bit, I've walked to work every day down Lothian Road. And uh, it's quite an interesting road. Uh, When I first started making that journey, I uh, discovered that amongst other things, there were a few news agents open in the mornings which seemed to deliberately parade certain magazines, even the front covers of which my wife wouldn't appreciate me looking at. Well, on the first occasion, I just wasn't anticipating seeing that. But the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that, when I walk down Lothian Road, it's a simple matter of self-control. But when I walk past that shop window, I choose to look the other way. And incidentally, in recent months, I've sometimes just went another route where the problem doesn't arise, so it takes me a little longer. Control your body. Avoid sexual immorality. Thirdly, know God, says Paul. Control your body, verse 5, not in a passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Now, I infer from that that, I think this is pretty clear, that knowing God is therefore a key to sexual purity. Do you see that in the verse These people are all over the map sexually, says Paul, precisely because they do not know God. If they knew God, he says, their sexual habits might be different. Yet, implication lying beneath the surface is, you do. See, once again, the battle for sexual purity is not a mere personal private issue. It's a God issue. It's about knowing God and living in a way that reflects 
that. And friends, I say gently to you, but I say directly to you, if some of us knew the person of God more, the majesty of God more, the holiness of God more, the mercy of God more, the pool of sin would seem less. Earlier this year, an American pastor named John Piper preached a powerful sermon titled Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. I recommend it to you. You'll find it on his website on the internet. Here's what he said. My conviction is that one of the main reasons the world and the church are awash in lust and pornography is that our lives are intellectually and emotionally disconnected from infinite, soul-staggering grandeur for which we were made. Television is trivial. Conversation is trivial. Christian books are trivial. Worship styles are trivial. It is inevitable that the human heart, which was made to be staggered with the supremacy of Christ, but instead is drowning in a sea of banal entertainment, will reach for the best natural buzz life can give. Sex. So friends, if God is not at the centre of your life, and progressively so, sexual sin may well be. So know God, says Paul. And fourthly, practically, love people. Love people. Now I take that from verse 6, where Paul says that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Paul's probably envisaging the prospect of a man committing adultery with his brother's wife or his brother's fiancée. And Paul says, not only would that displease God, which it would, but it would wrong your brother. Don't you love your brother? See, sexual sin is never an individual issue. Never. God is always involved. And people are always involved too. It's not just that member of the opposite sex you're tempted to get involved with. There might be a mum or a dad somewhere. Concerned, upset. Possibly a husband or wife whose world's going to be just broken apart. Children, sorely affected by the fallout. And you see, when we transgress God's boundaries, people get hurt too. So don't purposely, callously sin sexually, says Paul. Use these strategies, use these tactics to fight for purity. Love others, know God, control your body, avoid sexual sin. And don't be callous, he adds. See, Paul must have been aware that some of those listening to this letter read may have been rolling their eyes by this point. Perhaps thinking to themselves, well, Paul's really went a little over the top this time. I mean, a little bit of sexual sin can't be such a big deal, can it? Surely God will understand if I just do whatever I like, whenever I like, in this private personal area. But no, says Paul, he warns them thirdly, and we need to heed the warning too, of the penalty. See, sexual sin has its price, like all sin. It may and it often does seem pleasurable at the time, in the heat of the moment. But it flatters to deceive you. Like attractive bait which conceals the painful consequences. And while there are many consequences on a horizontal level, 
as Paul's just noted, the worst kind of consequences are in the vertical, related to God. For instance, Paul says, have you considered the issue of God's judgment? That the Lord will punish men for all such sins, verse 6, as I've already told you and warned you. Listen, consistent, callous, sexual misconduct is not the kind of behavior God tolerates. Therefore, if you are a careless Christian in this area, Paul says, be careful. God won't be mocked and his discipline will be sure. Yet, moreover, there's another issue here. Paul says, haven't you thought about God's calling? Remember, God did not call us to be impure. Do you think sexual sin was what God had in mind when he called you to holiness? Do you think adultery was part of his plan for your sanctification? Then don't reject God's calling. For Paul warns, when you reject God's calling, you reject God himself. You see, if God has called us to a holy life, if it's God's idea, therefore... He who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but he rejects God. Friends, these exhortations in this text aren't the preacher's ideas. They're not coming from the Charlotte Chapel leadership. They're not instructions from uh, your parents or your partner. They're not even primarily Paul the Apostle's ideas. They're God's. And we will have to answer to him if we simply brush them aside. If we can't care less. And so as we conclude, I want to firstly end on a note of warning on the one hand. Of course, I know that none of us, none of us are absolutely perfect in this area. But the question if you're a Christian tonight is this. Are you sinning in this area callously? With absolutely no thought for God? No concern for God? thinking you can just do whatever you like. It doesn't matter. Then Paul says to you, and it's meant to be a wake-up call, finally, that the God you follow is the God who gives you his Holy Spirit. At the end of verse 8. His Holy Spirit. And therefore, I want to impress on you what Paul did to another church in Corinth. When he said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. And you know, the wonderful thing about that is that not only have we got 1 Corinthians in our Bible, we've got 2 Corinthians. And it seems that there was a big turnaround in this church. There was repentance. There was a coming back to God, resting on His grace and yet not presuming it. And maybe tonight, You need to take heed of that particular warning. You need to come in genuine repentance and confession. You know, perhaps you're sitting here tonight and what you're really in need of is some encouragement. Uh, You're not a callous Christian. You long for sexual purity. And yet with little failure after little failure, you feel at the end of the line. Well, I finished with the same truth that Paul finished with, which is also an encouragement as well as a warning. Because the same fact that we possess the Holy Spirit is a motivator to our sanctification. So we can add another point to pleasure and purity and penalty 
possibility. You see, because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, for your rebellion and for mine, one of the blessings we receive as Christians is that we receive His Holy Spirit. And the Spirit makes sexual purity possible. Of course, we have to apply the strategies. We have to take up our responsibilities. But at the end of the day, it is the Spirit who enables us to achieve the task. See, as we've said all along, the issue of sexual purity is not just a private issue. It's a God issue. Therefore, let us allow God full sway in our lives, in all of our lives, and let's see together what he might do. Let's pray.